Our fundamental economic system is designed to tolerate and maybe even encourage mm-hmm. bad actors. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and you, if you if you put AI in that broader context, you're going to think a little differently, and maybe we'll finally have raised the stakes enough that we go, we have to take this seriously. But just think about this. Um, you know, uh, all of our food companies, you know, basically try to make their food addictive when we have an obesity epidemic, you know, that's, you know, who are the, there are bad actors there. This is a regulated market. The scale of harm is quite large. Yeah. We're just used mm-hmm. to it. We're worried about machines stamping out humanity when humanity, I think, has a much higher than 10% chance of doing that on its own. absolutely right and even if they did it with machines you know if these machines make that uh uh, more possibly you know okay well let's not have ais involved in uh launching nuclear weapons Uh, let's not have ais involved in uh, maybe unless unless it's the button uh, that putin's got his finger on then then could we have ai (laughs) (laughs) yeah there is that All right, welcome back to Invisible Machines. Today, Rob, we're having a heck of a discussion with Tim O'Reilly, who is the founder of O'Reilly Media. He also, as we'll discuss, had pretty much the world's first website. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? The the first commercial website that had advertising. Yeah, that's quite a a milestone. Yeah. A notch. He also, uh, Inc. Magazine, I think in 2010, called him the Oracle of Silicon Valley. And I think some of that comes through in our conversation. He, I think of how crazy I felt and looked talking about conversational AI, like whatever, three, four years ago, five years ago, like changing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the, yeah, the, the glossy eyed look people would give me and the, you know, <laughs> like I, I'd have to tone it back. I can't imagine what it was for him. You know, creating the first website. He's probably talking about the internet, like changing everything, and 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 everyone thinking he was crazy. And then, like on on one hand, how how much has changed, and then on the other hand, how little. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. These ads on his site <laughs> that had eyeballs and sponsors that paid him money for the ads. Not not sure how different how different that is today. But this should be interesting. He's, he's at a front row seat to change all the way from the, the you know start of the, the popularization of the internet to Web 2.0, which, Web 2, I think, which he coined, I, I believe, if not popularized. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the long list of books that O'Reilly's published and et cetera, like he's kind of seen a lot. Well, we didn't even get into it, but I mean, one of those O'Reilly books was yours. All right. Effective yeah. UI, correct? Yeah. Uh, interesting. We forgot to bring that up. Yeah. And uh, towards the end of the talk, it's cool. He kind of, he kind of, you prompt him with a question where he sort of tracks his journey from, from then to now and, and puts it in perspective as to like how much, how, how big of a deal is this moment yeah. in, uh, in history I, I, of technology? Yeah. I was pretty, I, I was pretty excited to hear him kind of regard this as more of an uh, you know an evolution going quickly than uh and I'm paraphrasing but an evolution that's going quickly versus a 
you know, revolution. Um, and uh, I guess the thing that's jarring is the speed in which, which the evolution is happening, which maybe that's just, you know, yeah, part of the yeah, definition well, of revolution, thing. but. Yeah, that, that idea that we've talked about a bit too, where to most of the world, it seems like this conversational AI came out of nowhere, but yeah. for people like you who've been working with it for decades, it's like, finally, yeah, <laughs> finally you're watching... people are seeing what I've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, it's not that something major just happened, it's that something major just got noticed, but it's yeah. been happening slowly, incrementally along the way, and then, yeah, suddenly the world took note and... and that defines the moment. It's the moment the world took note versus the moment it happened. Um, yeah, an important distinction, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Let's, All right, let's, uh, let's see what he has to say. Let's jump into this chat with Tim right now. All right, well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on Invisible Machines. Uh, Rob and I were having this conversation uh, recently I think a lot of people have been having conversations about regulation with with uh, all these explosions in AI technology. Uh, but we were trying to come up with, are there are there things that you can do with AI right now that are, are damaging and that can cause the kind of damage that, you know, might get um, sorted out in a court of law? Um, are there, are there uh, things you can do with AI that aren't already illegal in that sense? Like, are there ways you can use it to hurt people that aren't already in some way protected by various laws nationally, internationally? The answer is almost certainly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, as uh, you know, there's this great uh, uh, little book by two Nobel Prize winning economists called Fishing for Fools, P-H-I-S-H uh, <laughs> and P-H-O-O-L-S. And uh, it basically is about the fact that there is an efficient market for fraud, uh, just like there's an efficient market for everything else. And, you know, one of the things that you can say about uh, internet technologies is that they, they do make markets more efficient. And there are various technologies that uh, put people in charge of efficient markets, you know, such that, you know, Google or Amazon or now OpenAI is in fact the invisible hand of a market. And so in some sense, the issue is less, I mean, there's one set of issues, which is how is the technology itself regulating its behavior? You know, because I think one of the mistakes we make in thinking about regulation is that it's the imposition of rules from without. And that's part of it. But the real regulation, you know, that often runs things is embodied in the thing mm -hmm. itself. Um, and you, you have to build affordances for regulation. You know, like if you can't track something, you can't really do it. You know, you think about uh, the FAA and some of its things where it's regulating approach patterns to airports or areas that you can't fly over. Well, you have instrumentation that lets you follow those mm -hmm. regulations. And so I think in a lot of ways, when we're, we're thinking and talking about, you know, regulating AI, we have to think of it, of, of the two sides of the coin. What's the outside framework for thinking about it? And then what's the inside framework for actually doing it? 
And also, what are the incentives on each side to do the right thing? So when I think about, you know, uh, you know I, I, the analogy that came to me recently when I was writing this piece uh, was the analogy to financial accounting. And we do have a set of rules that businesses use that go back to the 13th century. You know, and it's like called double entry accounting. And you kind of, it's, it's a way of keeping track of your money. And it's really effective and it's really good. And virtually every business of any size mm-hmm. uses it. And then we have a set of accounting regulations that say, if you're a public company, you must use it and you must report on how you're using it. But if you then look at the implementation of those rules, they, A, they don't keep up with uh, the evolution of this efficient market for fraud. You know, you kind of go, people can slip through, they can, they can still perform fraud in those contexts. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that will um, slip through with, with AI regulation as well. But what we need to start with is we say, okay, well, what are the ways that the people who build these things, uh, what are the tools that they're building for regulating them? And so, you know, the whole training process is a form of regulation. And, and, you know, when you hear people like OpenAI saying, you know, we're, you know, or, or you know, there's been all these adversarial, you know, red teaming, so to speak, which has gotten breathlessly reported on in the press. And that's the process of working out the problems. It's like, just like, uh, you know, with a new airplane, you have mm-hmm. test pilots. Uh, who fly, fly them, uh, you know, under, you know, punishing conditions. And they try to figure out what could go wrong. And I think we're in that process right now for the current generation of AI. And so part of what I started pushing for was this notion that what we should do is formalize the best practices of the present for managing these things. And that means how do you detect and weed mm-hmm. out bias? Uh, how do you detect and weed out uh, attempts to misuse these things? You know, I mean, you hear stories, you know, it's like, okay, I got to, I, I, I'm trying to get it to, to be racist, or I'm trying to get it to give me, uh, you know, bad advice about suicide, or I'm trying to get it to uh, uh, explain to me how to make a bomb or poison gas, you know, and, and effectively those are, you know, if you think about back to my airline analogy, you know, these are, you know, like downdrafts, you know, or um, unruly passengers or, you know, and, and, and so, you know, after, after 9-11, there was this new set of best practices, which was you make uh, uh, more sturdy cabin doors. The, 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 the crew is, is trained to, you know, when the pilots come out to make it harder to get at the uh, you know, the cabin, you know, because they put the little cart across. Those are rules. Uh, a new affordance is against a new kind of, 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 of attack by a bad actor. And, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to think about this that would make it a lot easier and a little less fraught. Because one of the things that I think is wrong with a lot of uh, regulation, a lot of legislation in general, uh, is that it is it's so seen as a once and done kind of process. We're going to figure out all the problems. We're going to make a set of rules. And then you go, oops, we need a new rule. You know, so it turns out, for example, that, 
the European Union rules on on AI explainability uh, couldn't explain anti they couldn't explain the decisions that were being made by anti-lock breaks. So they had to make an accept a new rule that accepted anti-lock breaks from explainability algorithmic explainability, right. right? You know, and stuff like that. You know, it's just um, you know, and there's this great line from Clay Shirky. It was back back when the um, Affordable Care Act came out and, and, and healthcare.gov failed. And he wrote an article, I think it was in Foreign Affairs or maybe Foreign Policy, I forget which one. And uh, he, he had this fabulous line about the waterfall development process, which my wife, Jen Palka, in her book kind of was also applied to the policy development okay. process. And it is this idea that the waterfall method, which is where you design the thing from the beginning and the, you kind of go through this cascading set of, of steps you get to the end of the process, which is how government software is built and how basically most policy works, is, as in his words, is a commitment uh, not to learn anything while doing the actual work. And if you think about a lot of the way we're approaching regulation, it's like we're going to make shit up and then we're not going to learn anything while we're actually trying right. to. The assumption of knowing up front everything there is to done know. with regulation. That's right. And so instead, we need a regulatory process. And, and in my opinion, the first place we are is we start with what are people actually doing that's working? Is everybody doing it? You know, because you, you, and you look around and you kind of see, you know, there's a research paper that was published about GPT-4 and it makes certain mm -hmm. disclosures. And then when uh, Facebook released uh, uh, Llama, uh, they had a, a model card and they showed certain things, the, the weights, uh, 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 the model, you know, the, the parameter weights, which nobody else has shown in their disclosures. And you go, well, maybe that's that's a really good disclosure and everybody ought to do that. So you from each you could look around and go, OK, somebody did this part really well. Somebody else did that part really well. Somebody else has a really good red teaming process, but not everybody does. And you basically assemble just like we have for accounting. What's the base set? And then you put in place a process to keep dynamically updating it. You also figure out what are the standards that you audit against. But you really have to frame it all in the context of incentives. Mm -hmm. Because again, you think about financial regulation. We have a set of tools that... Uh, uh, are really good and it, and, and they're, but they're complex, you know, and say somebody like uh, Warren Buffett, the, you know, uh, you know, master value investor is somebody who can read company financials and see through to the business and really understand it. Not everybody understands it. He know, but he knows the difference between a well-managed company and a badly managed mm -hmm. one. And if quite honestly, if, if he were a regulator with, with his expertise, he would be basically saying, yeah, these guys need to up their game. These guys are, are, are squirrely. I wouldn't invest in right, those guys, right. you know. And um, so, you know, we know the difference between a well-managed company and, a, and a, a poorly managed one. And I think we need to get to that same understanding for AI. I'm not saying that would solve all the problems, but it would solve some important you brought problems. Up something, and it would give us a you base. You brought up something super interesting to me which is this idea 
um, of, I think it's like, you know, disclosed risk, I guess, is one way to put it. And that's, am I a test pilot testing a experimental aircraft or am I a, a, a passenger on a global airline? Um, you know, it is when, when I'm when I'm using these AI tools, am I a test pilot? And therefore, as long as the risks, I'm aware of the risks, you know, it, it, like there's a different standard to any liability associated with a test pilot getting into an aircraft, um, an experimental air, aircraft to like, you know, a commercial uh, passenger that bought a ticket and getting onto a an experimental aircraft right um and 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 yeah. that distinction is pretty clear in it in the world of airplanes but you know in, in the world of software is it is it clear that when i'm you know when i'm going and using these tools that it, that it's experimental and therefore therefore i assume the risks and that's the idea um or like like are we having trouble drawing that line between between when is this technology like crossed over from an ex experimental tool for people to experiment with at their own risk to, yeah. okay, we're now deploying this and warranting it, yeah, et cetera. Well, we're, we're right on the cusp of that. And, 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 and obviously that would be the next level of, uh, of regulation would be not to specify again in detail, you must do this, you must do that. It's but simply to say, if something blows up, you're liable. Right. <laughs> you know? and, and the question, of course, is how far does that liability go? Uh, you know, and you think again, you know, we ha we have some interesting uh, examples, you know, with self-driving cars, uh, where you know the rules say you're supposed like to keep that. your hands on the wheel. Uh, you're supposed to be. Um, you know, you can let this, you know, it's just like kind of like a, 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 you know, an autopilot of sorts, but you're still supposed to be paying attention. And then people start just, you know, taking naps and you right. know, some, you know, pretty bad accidents. And, you know, I think the the thing there was, you know, clearly the people paid a pretty high price for their yeah. uh, uh, misuse. And I, I think, I think we'll, you know, this there's sort of a mix. You know, we need to regulate the users in some ways as well as the, uh, just like you know, when we we think about driving a car, there is a regulation that says you must be a licensed driver, and you could imagine something that said you must be a licensed yeah. user, you know, and and that would be, you know, like it's not to say, you know, like again, you think about the different ways that this industry could be configured. You can go, okay, we have a um, uh, a set of constrained models and tools, uh, you know, say inside, uh, you know, there's a writing assistant inside, uh, you know, a Google Docs or Microsoft Word. There's a, uh, uh, you know, a, a video editing assistant, you know, and you kind of go, okay, there's going to be some parts of that where you go, oh, you don't really need to be, um, uh, license to use right. these features, you know, I mean, you're writing stories, whatever, but you know, like if, if, for example, you get up all the way to deep fake technology, you could have imagined, have imagined a, 
a regime where you said, okay, you, you know, to get an API key or, or to use this tool, you have to actually uh, be mm -hmm. identified. You know, you have to effectively have a license. And, and, and you know, again, this is something that uh, Jillian Hadfield has been pushing, the, the notion of, of, of registration as a kind of uh, important yeah. kind of regulation. You know, literally, you know, someone like OpenAI who has a very powerful model says, okay, uh, we have to be registered. And in order for somebody to use the most advanced features, they have to be registered, i.e. So we can, we can, you know, we know. Now that's sort of already broken down in some sense because of, of llama, alpaca, and so on. Uh, you know, the uh, Facebook as usual, uh, or meta, I should say, you know, move fast mm -hmm. and broke things, even though, you know, I mean, in some ways, OpenAI had already done that. But there were a lot of people in the national security field, for example, saying, well, we have we have this moat in that these things are very large and expensive and very hard to train. And therefore, that, that's a control yeah. point. You know, so this OpenAI is going to have this and Google's going to have this and a few other companies in China will have it. Uh, but, you know, you have that choke point where you can you can go, OK, uh, uh, open AI, you have to tell us, uh, who was doing this thing, you know, that, that, and you, you can stop them, you know, you can revoke their access or whatever. But now that we have, uh, you know, independent open source models that are proliferating and that are getting fat, better, faster than ever anybody thought, that's the point of that leaked Google memo. We have no moat, you know, that, that, the, the large compute costs on training were not actually as much a moat as everybody thought. That's going to make it harder to do that kind of regulation. But again, it's not. Um, <clears throat> you know, there are ways that you think about this in, in terms of the flows of information. You can think about, uh, you know, th 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 there's so much work being done and to be yeah. done. Uh, because it is a new yeah. field. The lines are just so fuzzy. I don't think like, the problems are you sort of you sell a paring knife to somebody, and you make it clear it's for slicing vegetables, and they use it as a hammer, and they cut themselves, and then, you know, then they they hold you responsible for selling a dangerous hammer, um, and you're like, but I never said it was a hammer. Yeah, I, I, I can't. That's right. I mean, I think that the regulation does have to be sensible. Uh, you know, there are a lot of tools that can be used dangerously. I mean, the question really is how bad is mm -hmm. this? Uh, you know, and, and it is a, a new wave of democratization of enormous power. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the same way that the Internet was, but maybe even amplified even further. And... Uh, but but again, if you think about, for example, AI-generated misinformation, right now that still has to transit over, you know, uh, uh, various kinds of of, of uh, social networks, and those guys then, you know, that's it, that's not about regulating uh, open AI necessarily or the ability to generate stuff. It's 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 they might want to really be working with the YouTubes and the Facebooks and whatever, okay, how are we going to detect, you know, fakes that are generated uh -huh. with our tool? But that's true heck of Photoshop, right. for Christ's sake. You know, so... Um, yeah, it's funny how, like, with AI know, in this moment, in like, before, 
you could you could Photoshop somebody into a photograph that wasn't actually there, you know? I almost like conjure up like Forrest Gump being you know, those pictures of him with the president, etc. Yeah. It seemed like we didn't freak out as badly then when when that happened to like now where where that's just a lot easier to do. You know? It's not that you couldn't do it if you had the skills. It's just yeah. it's just much easier to do right now and you can sort of do it on the fly. Um but but somehow since we've got this label assigned to it like AI um and we've anthropomorphized this thing it almost feels like more of higher yeah. consequence um than than actually the first time yeah. we digitized an image and photoshopped somebody into a place convincingly that that they that's weren't a, at yeah I, I i i think that's right you know and in some ways uh, this is, it, you know, is happening very quickly and it's a bit of a surprise. In other ways, it's something that's, you know, immensely more powerful than what we had before. But there is also just a lot of yeah. fear-mongering and, and there is uh, a lot of, I, I think, semi-intentional confusion definitely. between the, the, these fears of remote artificial general intelligence with its own agency. You know, the, the way people talk about the AI did this, the model did this. And you look at, at uh, you know, the, the famous, the New York Times story from, with Kevin Roos, um, uh, you know, it, where it's suggesting that the model, Bard is suggest not Bard, um, Sydney was suggesting, uh, you know, he leave his wife right. and, you know, and, and you kind of go. He had to tor- He had to torture. Yeah, he it to led. Get that yeah, he led the I mean, witness. That was not like a model. <laughs> yeah. he managed to make yeah. it say that. You know, and it's just that. Come on, that's just not. There's just some. There's some real. In a way, um, it's a, it's an example of how stupid it is because you can lead the witness easily, right? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So. That kind of brings me back around to an unfinished thought uh, that I had earlier, which is, you know, all regulation has to be put in the context of incentives um, because there are bad actors. Uh-huh. Uh, there are people who are passively bad actors, you know, who are, i.e., they, they're profiting from yeah. bad actors. And then there are uh, good actors you know, yeah. and, and good uses. And so when you think about like bad actors, okay, so, you know, Facebook wasn't spreading misinformation. People were, you know, bad actors were using Facebook to spread misinformation. And Facebook was not doing a good enough job. Yeah, negligence at best. Because they had their own, they had their own incentives that said, well, this is engaging content. And, and I think that that is in a lot of ways, the biggest, um, the biggest threat is that our our fundamental economic system is designed to tolerate and maybe even encourage mm-hmm. bad actors. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and you, if you if you put AI in that broader context, you're going to think a little differently, and maybe we'll finally have raised the stakes enough that we go, we have to take this seriously. But just think about this. Um, you know, uh, all of our food companies, you know, basically try to make their food addictive and we have an obesity mm-hmm. epidemic, you know, that's, 
you know, who are the, there are bad actors there. This is a regulated market. The scale of harm is quite large. Yeah. We're just used mm-hmm. to it. Well, it's interesting too, because you're, you're talking yeah, about like, um, a form of regulation that's, that's, that would kind of need to be flexible and adaptive, which, are, which yeah. are things that the government is not particularly well known for being. Um, and then you're, you're also coupling that with this, the set of technologies that's mutating and changing and evolving every day and kind of jutting out in unexpected directions. So does regulation require a bit more than what we were used to? Are we looking at like systemic change that needs to happen before uh, we can really feel like we understand it? I believe that's what I, that's what I'm working up to because I think that there is a systemic change that's necessary. And it is basically wrapped up in this concept, which I actually talked about in my 2017 book, uh, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. We have already built a rogue AI. It's just a slow AI. That, that term <laughs> slow AI comes from Charlie Strauss, the science fiction right. writer, who gave this inspired rant where he said that corporations are just slow AIs. Right? <laughs> they have their own motives. Uh, we've, we've already told them to do the right. wrong thing. And that's really, if you look at shareholder capitalism as opposed to stakeholder capitalism, you know, uh, you know, it's a classic example of, you know, the thing that, you know, is that far f- future fear of artificial general intelligence, the Nick Bostrom's yeah. paperclip maximizer. You gave the, the AI the wrong instructions and it went to town and said, oh, actually, you know, we can make more paperclips yeah, and yeah, get rid yeah. of the people, you know? And, and, and uh, I, you know, I go, well, isn't that a description of Purdue Pharma? Right. You know, if we soften these regulations, we can sell these more of these opioids, we can make shareholder value. You know, uh, and, and, you know, and, and here's this collateral damage. I don't think they intended to make an opioid crisis, but they they certainly are responsible for it because they weakened the regulations. They literally lobbied to, to make it sound like this stuff was safer. They, they marketed to physicians to prescribe it, you know, and all of that was because here's this big, slow AI called Purdue Pharma that was told optimize for shareholder pro- profit, don't actually think about all these other things. And, and I think that, you know, so ultimately, if you think that way, you go, oh, wow, so much that's wrong with our world is already in the hands of, is that we're already in the hands of slow AIs that are being told to do the wrong thing. We're now going to speed up and give more power to that process. And what that says to me is that if we really want to fix AI governance, we have to fix corporate governance because corporations are going to be the ones who are most... Yeah, I almost think of it as like slow, but yeah. also like really basic algorithms, like really blunt force, like the first yeah. the first like and, and, and newsfeed algorithms of Facebook, just, just so basic and unsophisticated that it has all this... Cla- it's like using a, a rock to pound a nail, like just just these these really, really lame simple algorithms because as humans we need simple algorithms to execute at scale so enterprises need these like basic simple algorithms so that they can get consistency and all of these things and yeah. and and now we're in the world of of you know more sophisticated algorithms and and maybe it, like it's it's through it not around it or not holding it back it's that we got to get out of the world of basic blunt force algorithms that we might look back on as like really rudimentary tools and say like once we get more sophisticated algorithms then you know this 
this allows us to to bob and weave for those edge cases. Um, but I wanted to bring up something y- you just struck, which is like you know that movie Minority. I think it's Minority Report where they like put people in jail for predicting that they're going to commit a crime. Is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. In some ways, I think there's an irony here where we're trying to like um, almost police something before the crime's been committed in AI. Like it's we're kind of looking mm-hmm. at it like this is about to happen and, and we're and then we're we're looking at like regulating what hasn't happened yet um it kind of feels a little minority report ish in what we were talking that, about fraud earlier and fraud yeah. is fraud is not legal but the, there's like all these like micro offenses now that can be happening at almost this like subatomic level that we now have to figure out how to police yeah yeah I, the, the, the question is, though, do we want, you know, how much, uh, you know, how much policing mm-hmm. do we want? How much do we need? Um, and, and, and how much of it can we expect the market yeah. to do? You know, how much can we expect individuals to do? Uh, but I, I, I guess I would just say that the system is imperfect. There are bad a- actors, including, again, this sort of gray area class of bad actors of which Facebook or Meta, you know, and, and, and YouTube and all the ones from the last generation are probably in the B leagues, quite honestly, compared to tobacco right. companies, oil companies, uh, produce, you know, f- you know, pharma companies, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the harms that they have enabled or encouraged, you know, quite, mm-hmm. quite honestly, I, I just think we're in more of a panic about, uh, new technology yeah. than, than, and, and, and we tolerate, um, you know, everything else. So, you know, this great study by Yokai Bank, Bank, Bankler wrote a book about, uh, uh, internet propaganda, um, and they studied Twitter and they noticed that on the, you know, that, that, that basically misinformation, and you know, bias stuff started on the fringes of, of Twitter for small things, and it gets picked up and it gets amplified. And he said, "Look, uh, on the left, there tends to be, or and this was at the time they did the study. It's a little less true now, I think. There tends to be a mainstream media ecosystem that tamps down the most extreme stuff, and on the right, there's a media ecosystem that amplifies the most extreme stuff. You know, the pizza right. dates and so on. Um, and and so." And why is that? Well, because somebody figured out they could make money by doing that. And so I put Fox News in a position of far greater responsibility for the misinformation that was supposedly spread by Facebook because they were the ones who basically then hijacked the system and said, well, we're mainstream. They lobbied also against social media regulation, saying you're biased against us because you're, you know, you're filtering mm-hmm. out this misinformation that you know, is very profitable for us. You know, so again, you really just have to look at who the bad actors are and what their incentives are. And we need a much broader view of who we need to regulate. It's not just open AI we need to regulate. You know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be Fox News. You know, it's going to be the people who go, oh, yeah, God, this deep fake technology is the best thing ever. You know, we can can make uh, amazing news, you know. And, you know, I I do think that we're, we're... yeah, yeah it, it's anyway, it's those it's point. those people who promise yeah. it's going to be safe when it's not. 
um, not the folks who are saying it's not safe and, you know, use at your own risk. It's those downstream who are purporting to to sell it as something safe and, and then it's not, which is, you know, that's clearly, clearly a lie. Um, or something I wanted to... Yeah, that, that's really not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm actually saying that there are people who, you know, who, who are saying, yeah, this is a dangerous technology. Use it with care. And then there's going to be a set of people who, who are a outright bad actors who are saying, I, I actually want to create and spread, you know, misinformation. Mm, got it. And, um, and, and then there's going to be uh, a set of people who are enablers of that for profit. You know, and, and, and I think that we just have to recognize that the chain of bad actors. The other, and it's kind of an ironic piece in this whole AI regulation story, because some of the people who are making the biggest stink about AI regulation are demonstrating themselves to me as purveyors <laughs> of misinformation. And I'm talking about the people who wrote, you know, you, you, you probably read the, about this highly reported study that. You know, at least half of, of AI researchers think that there's a, yes. a at least a ten percent chance that uh, you know th- these these things could destroy humanity. And if you actually go read the survey that they did, it asks a bunch of open-ended questions. You know, like when do you think we might achieve artificial general intelligence? I think the the, the, the consensus answer was 2059. Uh, they asked, you know, this is you know, a bunch of questions about. AI, and then they came to AI safety, and they had they introduced the section in a way that they don't introduce any of the other <laughs> uh, sections with a two paragraph introduction with a quote from Stuart Russell, who's a great guy. But they took it, you know, this piece where he was just saying, "Here are all the possible ways that AI could go terribly right. wrong," and they then they say, <laughs> "How worried are you about this?" You know, that's called anchoring bias. That is a completely biased survey. It is a piece right. of misinformation that was designed to create that yeah. statistic. And then it gets widely uh, uh, you know, fed into the media. So I guess, so here are these people who are positioning themselves as the champions of, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, regulating the risks of AI and they're, they're not, you know, and here they are using a much simpler, uh, older technology to create massive misinformation uh, that's really yeah, shaping yeah. It's the like dialogue. humans doing it, which is funny because we were, we're worried about machines stamping out humanity when humanity, I think, has a much higher than 10% chance of doing that on its own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. And even if they did it with machines... You know, if these machines make that uh, more possible, yeah, it will yeah. still be. And, we're, and we doing keep, it. I, I keep hearing this like greater than zero chance is is enough to talk about, but I feel like uh, a greater than zero chance of of you know uh, hurting humanity as a whole. There's like a whole long list of things that fall into that category of just greater than zero. Um, yeah, and like, why yeah, is this I, I, one? I guess the question is, yeah, uh, there probably are some things that you would say, you know, like, again, people talk about the, uh, uh, you know, the conference on regulation of, of biotechnology, Osilomar, where they, they decided to pull back from certain kinds of things. And I think there are probably are things mm-hmm. that are in that category, you know, and, and, uh, 
you know, some of it might be, you know, okay, well, let's not have AIs involved in uh, launching nuclear weapons. Yes, 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 uh, yes. Let's not have AIs involved in uh, maybe unless, unless you know, it's the button uh, that Putin got his finger on. Then, then could we have AI? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that. Uh, uh, you know, but there definitely are things where you go, yeah, that might not be a good yeah. idea. Uh, let's not have autonomous killer robots. Right. Um, are, are we in like a weird double bind right now too, though? Because, you know, there, there are companies, big organizations, enterprises trying to figure out how to adopt all the technologies surrounding AI, but they're, they're doing it from a mindset of like profitability first. Like they, we, we need some of these big companies to shift their, uh, their end goal, right? Like they, they shouldn't be about profitability. Maybe they should be more about like something closer to what Patagonia is doing almost even. So, but, but at the same time, like yeah, they're having to spend I, this I money, right? They're like needing to make an investment yeah. in making their company less valuable in a way. If, if, if they're to follow the trajectory that, that seems the most responsible anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't think though that that's an either okay. or a choice. Uh, this is, um, you know, there are some very, very, very successful companies that have basically followed, you know, triple bottom line kinds of thinking. And for that matter, Google itself was incredibly profitable from the beginning. I, I have a general theory of what goes wrong there, though. And, and it's, it's it really goes back to why our financial markets are, are really the, uh, the evil AI that's ruling our society. Uh, you, you look at a company like Google, they start out with a motto that says, don't be evil. And there's this new market and it's Greenfield and there's this huge opportunity and they're inventing the future and they become an incredibly profitable company. You know, but after, uh, you know, 15 years or, or, or so, uh, you know, guess what? Internet penetration is kind of everywhere. And uh, uh, what do they do? Uh, they, they, they go, we have to keep growing. Why do they have to keep growing? Why do they have to keep increasing, become ever more profitable? Because that's what the master algorithm Yeah, it's the says. feedback loop. You know, it's you, a we big built a enterprise. Where you pay your people in stock, your stock price has yeah. to keep going up. And, and, and so you start with good intentions and then you start preying on society a little bit just around the edges and eventually you go in whole hog because you are yeah. a slave to that master yeah you could algorithm. almost say that the stock market is the ai and the feedback loop is the is the stock price and and the company's going to do whatever it takes to move the stock price up and uh, so long as it's within the boundaries that's right and and it is kind of a dumb machine it's not very intelligent it's it's just it's just doing whatever was is is within the boundaries of the law, and not because it's within the boundaries of the law, but because that if it goes outside the boundaries of the law, the stock price goes down. <laughs> so, it's just like really th this basic, you know, basic machine that's that's just operating on a on a on a one dimensional feedback loop that isn't necessarily like what's great for society or employees or customers, but just what's great right. for the stock price. Um, and not even that that's what's on their head. That's just the feedback yeah. loop. That's, that's what they get back and then they adjust and then they listen. That's right. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, 
so I, I guess I have two, like two, um, you know, uh, on, on, on the one hand, I, I think whenever there's a new technology, it's a fresh opportunity to look at these fundamental issues of what do yeah. we want, who do we want to become, what future do we want to make? And also, you know, to look at, I mean, they're, they're just, it's just low hanging fruit right now, you know, like bias and algorithms, you know, uh, you know, by it, and you look at application by application in hiring, how do you deal with that in media? How do you deal with that? Uh, there's questions of, 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 of copyright and, you know, incentive incentives for creators and how do you deal with that? You know, so there's all these issues that are going to get surfaced and dealt with, and we're going to try to come to, uh, you know, sort of agreement about us. I like that idea that we're like stepping outside uh, the yeah, box make... for a second, looking inside the box and reevaluating. It's like an opportunity to to step outside and evaluate everything, yeah. whether it's relevant or not to AI. Yeah, I, I think when we do that, we have to actually have our heads on straight because it's really easy to convince ourselves that it's the technology that's right. the problem. You know, so you think about, uh, you know, there's been a bunch of stuff about algorithmic mm -hmm. bias in, say, sentencing, you know, and you go, OK, well, uh, we have to we have to root that bias out of the algorithm. And yes, we do. But we also have to understand that the algorithm and the training is a mirror. It shows right. us who we have actually been, you know, and so do we actually just say, oh, over there. You know, fix the AI, or do we say, well, shit, which judges did we train this mm -hmm. stuff on? <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, like, w what decisions were they making? I mean, if this was, uh, was decisions from 30 years ago, fine, but if there's still a bunch of recent decisions uh -huh. and we're seeing that bias, you know, in that, that training set, we, we should damn well be reading back to, well, where did it come from? Right. Let's fix it. You know, like, <laughs> don't just say, oh, yeah, we're going to kind of, it's a little bit like you walk in, uh, you look in the mirror, you say, these clothes don't look good on me. And then you try to adjust the mirror so that they look good. <laughs> they still don't look good when you run the world. You know, and there's a lot of things that AI shows us and goes, so you yeah, don't recommend that? I shouldn't do that as, as a species. Okay. That's <laughs> just. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like it's not a good luck on us as a species. Let's go. Let, 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 you know, do we do we just try to fix the mirror, or do we 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 uh, go actually try yeah. to look a little better? Yeah, know, which side of that better. is like training training large language models? I mean, they in some ways they're a reflection of all the all the good and bad things yeah. we've been pouring onto the yeah. web for years and years. So are we training? We're kind of like, are we trying to fix yeah. the mirror, or are we trying to change ourselves? Yeah. yeah. That's right. And, and the other thing, you know, of course, is the way that, you know, we're dealing with this at O'Reilly. We, you know, we have a large body of technical content and we're training a smaller model mm -hmm. on our stuff, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we, we basically get the benefit of a large language model kind of intelligence and interface. But it's instead of getting random stuff off the Internet, and mixing it in with with high quality vetted content, we're kind of saying, well, let's let's take a smaller model and just uh, fine tune it with with, with our content. And, and you're going to look at that. You know, you think about somebody like like yeah. Westlaw you, as they or LexisNexis when they deploy AI, 
they're going to be basically training a model on right. legal precedents. They're not going to be training it on what a bunch of people on Reddit think right. about the law, right? And, and in, in some ways, in, in that case, you know, you may be better off starting with yeah. a smaller model. So you're not taking a bigger model that has been trained on yeah. all the Reddit stuff. And, but there's also, even in the training, I think there's something that, that, that uh, it, uh, it doesn't get talked about enough, which is you're, you're basically training both a recognizer and a, 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 an expressor, right. or, you know, a, a, an output uh, yeah. uh, AI, right? There's one that, and so, you know, you might well want to be, have your input side trained mm -hmm. on Reddit, but your output side trained on LexisNexis so that you can understand when somebody's asking a question in the common parlance or the, you know, the, I read on the internet that blah, 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 blah. And so it understands the question, but it right. also understands that that's not the set of, of data that you use for the answer. And I think we're going to get better at those kinds of things where we understand that it's a multi-stage process and there's different, you know, benefits to, uh, you know, training, uh, you know, part of it on all the bad stuff, but then you basically, I mean, it's just like kids, you know, they, they learn, uh, you know, slang and they learn uh, so-called bad language and they also learn, oh, you don't use it or here's where it's okay to use it and here's, here's where it's not. And I think well, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to yeah. be working out. Yeah. Before, before we lose you, I don't want to, there's one, one thing I, uh, I, I wanted to ask you um, or get your perspective on. So, I was listening to a, a, a podcast um, with uh, Marshall McLuhan's son, um, and he was talking about his dad's books, uh, and he he made a point um, that uh, random, I think it's no, it wasn't Random House, it was uh, McGraw Hill uh, when they originally published. Um, I don't remember what uh, uh, Media is the Mess. I'm not sure which which book it was, but. Um, there was kind of a rule that that he he mentioned, which was that the book should be, you know, no more than ten percent new ideas and then ninety percent kind of regurgitating old ideas, um, because anytime you like get beyond that ten percent, you lose people. And and sure enough, like for his book, it was way well well beyond ten percent, and 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 it went it played out exactly as they said. It you know tons of criticism and you know they liked it and blah blah blah. Um, yeah, and, and it kind That's of like it it, it 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 kind of reveals possibly a bigger kind of algorithm in humanity, which is like we don't want zero percent change. Like that feels like stagnation, and, and we get uncomfortable with that. But we don't want you know more than ten percent change or or some number, you know. Um, and then now we're like right. we're like we're beyond that sweet spot, and 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 so naturally we're like you know in that criticism mode of, Hey, this is, this is bigger than 10% change. This is like 30 or 40% change. And, and we don't know how to handle that. We don't, we don't know what to do about that. And, and the thought was that, that this, this, you know, this rule that they had created, which I think revolved around academia and textbooks and stuff seemed like a good Petri dish for like testing. What, what is the percentage of change that, that, that people are comfortable yeah. with, like where does that range, and then and then and then you know what happens when you go outside it, um, and I, yeah, I, I, n no particular question there other than just you're you're a publisher, you 
there's probably something about that 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 resonates. Yeah, I guess I would say that um, uh, there's a great quote from Alvin Toffler, and he said, "The future always comes too fast and in the wrong order." <laughs> And, and, uh, uh, I, I like that, uh, because it's not the first time, uh, that we'll, we'll have confronted issues like this. Uh, but there's a real, um, I think the thing I come back to, and it's really the ultimate point of my book, which was about these issues. The subtitle was, yeah, the, the title was WTF, yeah. <laughs> what's the Love future that. and why it's up to us. Yeah. And, and the idea that, that, that we have choices to make and that as a society, we do make choices. We, we design things, you know, it's like our society is a defined artifact. And this is, uh, I don't know if you've ever read David Graeber, uh, but you know, he, he, his books like uh, the utopia of rules and, and the, uh, uh, the, the last book he wrote before he died, the dawn of everything. It's just really, it's an exploration of this idea that we have of progress and that somehow uh, our current society is this inevitable, you know, consequence of, of, of a series of evolutionary steps. And it's just like, that's just not true. You know, that, you know, you look, for example, you know, because there's a narrative about early uh, agricultural societies and as they started to store grain, uh, they became, you know, uh, complex enough. They needed to have an administrative state and that led to the rise of, of, of hierarchy and, it's like, no, actually, you can kind of see there were actually for tens of thousands of years, there were quite large cities uh, where all the buildings were the same size, no size, right, no sign right. of hierarchy, you know. So the, the buildings are, you know, and there's even cases where there, wa there was uh, clearly some kind of hierarchy and then people moved away from it. You kind of talked about the, you know, in North America, they had this civilization called Cahokia, that's what they call it now. But these giant temples and you know, this is down in, in, in uh, Mississippi and Louisiana. And, you know, if you look back at the, the, the um, you know, kind of the actual, you know, narratives that come from the later Native Americans, there was eventually a revolt against that. And they decided to not to right. choose that life. You know, it wasn't just this sort of collapse of a civilization, you know, he, he, at least yeah. in his version. It's not, there's this sort of self-serving narrative, which is, uh, you know, the, the people who are in power are there because it's sort of just an inevitable and necessary uh, point. And he's like, no, societies yeah. make choices. Yeah, I could, like the penthouse of a make big building choices. being the headquarters of a company. And now today it's, you know, it's it, that's almost like a cliche that nobody wants to <laughs> to be part of. Yeah, yeah. I love that slow AI concept, and it, it kind of reminds me of this idea that Rob and I have talked about before, where um, it, it really feels like there would be value to companies having a, a really good science fiction author, at least on retainer, if not like maybe stationed in the C-suite, just up there to like, because it feels like there aren't enough people that are patient enough. I think you need a lot of patience to build that kind of foresight, and you have to have the right kind of mind. and. I mean, that slow AI thing just kind of exemplifies that for me, where you, you're really seeing all the pieces and kind of yeah. something's emerging that you can, you can then share forcefully. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I just I don't think that's the answer. Uh, somebody once said, you know, should there be a chief, you know, uh, uh, should companies have a chief ethics officer? And I'm like, dude, there's already uh, a, a title CEO, uh, which should be the chief ethics officer. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, if if the you know if the company itself doesn't, you know have those values it's you know you're not going to have anybody who's sort of posted there as the yeah you know um you know kind of the 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 restraining you would almost argue that once you have one you know and i think it almost it almost causes people to defer like oh oh, you know i don't need to worry about ethics we have an ethics officer so i can just you know not care about it I, i guess all i'm saying is is um this is the latest incarnation of a long yeah. struggle, <laughs> you know, and if we put it in that historical context, uh, we understand both what the stakes are and we don't, yeah. we're not going to pan. Well, you've seen this close up uh, now. It doesn't like, help us. Yeah. You know, first page on the internet. I think I read, <laughs> I mean, you've seen this close up yeah. now and like in the arena from the beginning, how different is this than, you know, the internet? <laughs> um, and uh, like, how different does this feel? You know, it, it's it's hard to say. Uh, in, in one sense, uh, you know, when I think about this, I think about two or three different uh ways that it's impactful and one of them you know and 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 i guess partly i'm going to put this in the context of not of the impact on society but in the impact on the computer industry and you look at the the kind of the uh you know the rise of 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 the cycles of the computer industry are are almost like the rise and fall of civilizations. You know, it's just, uh, I I sometimes say tech tech industries, the tech industry is the fruit fly of (laughs) economics uh, because, you know, uh, you see nations rise and fall over the span of decades instead of centuries, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Um, um, But, you know, so, but in that cycle, you see, you know, the first computers were literally, you know, hardwired circuits. And then they were, you know, digital general purpose computers, but they were programmed with literally putting in, you know, binary digits. And then we got assembly language and then we got, you know, higher level languages. And, uh, you know, we're at this sort of command line, you know, computer world when most of us first encountered, you know, computers, we had our, you know, and, so you can see this gradual progression to, to making things easier. And then we get to the web and, and there was something really interesting about the web in that uh, it, for the first time, it meant that your dominant interface was really heavily in human language. You know, like if you look at a program like Microsoft Word, even the GUI was just, it, it was a, a layer over the command line, but it wasn't, it, it was little bits of human language embedded in a lot of uh-huh. computer code. And then suddenly the web was the next step where it was little bits of computer code callable from a human right. document. You know, so the, you have these web interfaces and, and, you know, a button is just, 
you know, just word. And now this is the next stage in that evolution. Now you're just talking to an AI and it's generating, you know, the, you know, the, the, the computer stuff on down the chain all the way back down to the hardware. And um, so that's an evolution of the communication modality with computers. And, and if you look at that, this is like one of the really big evolutions. You know, it's like the evolution from the, you know, the command line uh, uh-huh. to the GUI to the web. And now, so this is be the fourth in our lifetime. Right, because mobile was sort of like a continuation of, of you know, web-like interfaces. It wasn't, you know, it, it maybe it's a half step in a, in a, in a certain way. Um, so in that evolution, this is huge. And in each of those evolutions, you got a new set of companies that ruled the roost, and you you saw new sources, of new control points. I. I you know, a lot of my original thinking about Web 2.0 was driven by that analogy. You know, IBM controlled uh, the computer industry by, by means of a hardware monopoly. And then when the, the hardware was commoditized with the personal computer, they still believed, uh, as did everybody else, that it was still a game where you had control via your hardware platform. Uh, but Microsoft understood that there was a, a software game and they ended up, you know, kind of stealing a march on uh, on uh, IBM and, and coming to rule the roost through through software APIs and operating systems. And then along comes the web and Netscape is playing the old game. They're kind of like, we're going to have an interface. We'll be the, the they, they used to call it the web top, you know, they didn't realize, but the, the, the next generation was actually information interfaces. And it was not software control over software APIs. That was the control point. It was data, you know, and that was the essence of my big web 2.0 thing. And in one sense, you can say that um, uh, that uh, you know these are just the next generation of data-driven machines, and and not really a, a full right. step. But I suspect that there's a paradigm shift hidden in there. You know, I wrote this piece called "The Open uh-huh. Source Paradigm Shift," which is about that. You know, this is this. You know, the commodification of, of software by open source led to the recentralization of power through through AI. I mean, through yeah. uh, through big data. I, I do think that there is potentially in the AI moment a game changer for people like Google in in these smaller uh, models that are distributed open source. You know, they're the equivalent of the personal computer for AI. And you know, so basically you were seeing more and more cent- big centralized companies like Google and Meta and Amazon. And now suddenly computing power is being, um, you know, uh, democratized again in a pretty profound way. And new companies going to emerge in yeah. that transition. So that's one, you know, kind of way of looking at this is just like the interface. And we have this new you know, kind of speech as a first-class interface, even to things like programming, but certainly things like art that you couldn't, you know, like, my gosh, you can actually just do art by talking to a, you know, a computer now. And you can do pretty good, you know, things that you could never do yourself, you know, uh, even more so than in in the era of GUI application. But then there's this other axis, which you can look at is, well, what's the scope of, uh, you know, what's the the possibility of Uh reach? And... Um, 
you know, it, it's it's really interesting because you know we 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 saw that with the personal computer, there were a lot more of them, and then you know uh, computers running the web, there were there it was more of them, and then mobile was this huge explosion, and of course we have also all of these um, you know intelligent devices. I think that that's kind of where we're going to see this other explosion. It's just what's the reach. And it's not necessary because the Internet's already global. I'm not sure that it's going to be um, necessarily more, um, you know, more screens. It's going to be more devices, you know, like, you know, your cars, your phones, your house. Everything becomes attached to the Internet. And so... Um, you know, and, and again, in that change in reach, there's going to be new opportunities for companies to become, you know, meaningful players and, and market leaders. And then um, in that, there's also a, a, a real risk that I don't think gets talked about very much. And I, I was on a call uh, yesterday uh, with a bunch of, you know, scientists and researchers. We were talking about AI risks. And Sir Martin Rees, is an astrophysicist, uh, made a really uh, uh, important point. He said, the biggest risk that I see that's a real risk is that we become too dependent. Yeah, that's where I'm at. It's... You know, we're, already well, we're already well down the path uh, where, you know, you imagine, you know, what, what could utterly destroy our society? Uh, it could be a solar storm. Right, uh, right. A... Um, uh, Meteor, uh, yeah. You know, a terrorist attack takes out, but you no know, things that basically take out our electronic infrastructure, and suddenly our we can't feed yeah. people, we can't you know get power to people. People are freezing, people are starving. You know, this is a this is a civilization-ending event in yeah. our dependence, and so you know, there's a really interesting again a set of architectural, uh, um, uh, you know opportunities for society now some of them you know like this you know massive solar storm or something that wipes out electronics you know it doesn't help you to have a decentralized power grid for example uh, but i think there are certainly a lot of things where decentralized computing decentralized uh, uh you know power grids decentralized everything is more robust than big centralized uh systems but you, you're gonna need a mix but that machine stops kind of uh you know, it's the famous story by E.M. Forster, you know, uh, where people are pampered. Yeah. And they're just used to these, you know, machines doing everything for them. Stop. And suddenly the machine stops and nobody can like do anything. Like parents and children, like. Uh, it is probably a bigger risk than many of the things that people are, are, are uh, getting. Yeah, I think about. I'm in that camp. Uh, you know, I, I, I like. I think there's always like glimmers of the future in today. And one of those to me is the GPS. You know, it's very conversational. It's, you know. It, it it routes a, a path from point A to point B, but if you like decide to turn left instead of right, it recalculates and um and like uh, lets you, you're still in charge, but but it does you know kind of guide you and help you. And and now uh, a soccer mom can become a taxi driver where they don't have to memorize the streets, and that's pretty cool. But that's right. I I you know I've told this before. You know, if if I'm if I'm in the midst of a journey and my GPS dies halfway, I'm I'm lost, like more lost than usual because I have no idea how I got there, and <laughs> and I have no idea where I'm going. 
and and then I just try to do that on scale. Like you know, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm trying to get to like so so now I have all of these AI systems that are like GPSing me through life, and I'm just depending on them to tell me when to get up, when to go to bed, what to eat, and then like you said, the power grid goes out, and I'm like lost. I don't know how I got there, and I don't and I don't know where I was going. <laughs> Well, and the conversational interface kind of like leads you yeah. there too, right? Like if you yeah. think of something like ChatGPT as a front end needing a back end, like once it's yeah. part of an Very ecosystem, parental. yeah, where it can help um, parents like guide you like through words, you know. But like once it has yeah. once it has context and connect to the other yeah. software in your life, I think the world becomes a little more like uh, Rob and I talked about the movie Her a lot, where he he has this OS in his life. And it often manifests on his phone or like whatever this thing he's carrying, but he has an earbud. It's sort of like this silent passenger that he can just talk to and it can do any number of things. It can show him things on different yeah. screens. But then, you know, you, you live like that for five years. What happens when that disappears? Like, can you remember how to get to the bathroom? Like, do you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, again, you know, our society is uh, not everybody's in the mm -hmm. same boat. Uh, and you know, we'll have different societal segments that are more or less into various, uh, bits of technology. I, so again, I, I'm not, I'm a lot more worried about the motivations of many of the actors and the incentives that, uh, uh, you know, our, our, our society provides to many of the actors than I am about the technology. Yeah. Itself. It's a, it's a very human problem. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's right. It's a very human problem. I think that's probably a good place yeah. for us to, to wrap. <laughs> yeah. Very human All problem. All right. Well, Tim, thank you for helping us yeah, unravel this very human problem. It was a lot of fun. And we'll look forward to maybe continuing the conversation some other time. All right. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of Invisible Machines. Be sure to subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so you can hear new episodes as they are released. You should also subscribe and like the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Big thank you to everyone at UX Magazine for your support in making this podcast, especially our producer, Kate Timchenko, who has done an amazing job booking some fantastic guests. Uh, thank you also to our executive producer, Elias Parker, who has also done a lot of work booking some pretty incredible guests for this show. And thank you, as always, to the OneReach.ai marketing team, and our video editor, Mike Litvinov, for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We will see you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.